All right, well, amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Uh, I was thinking as I was getting ready to come up here, I read an article yesterday. It's very interesting. Uh, whenever there are articles about the church, I always try to read them and to see what the current trends are and all these kinds of things. And it was very interesting as I read the article. Uh, it was about the uh, dynamics of the church. And so the first thing that they talked about was that the average age of a lead pastor today in America is 60 years of age. I thought that was interesting because I'm 60 years old, and so they hit it right on the, uh, on the button. Uh, but what was really surprising to me, and this is what made me think of it as I watched the children leave for Children's Church What was very surprising to me is that in that same article, it said that the average age of those who attend church regularly is 65 years old. And I thought, wow, boy, are they missing it as it relates to our church. I mean, they ought to come and sit, and when our praise team gets done singing and they watch the army of children that go out to children's church, we are blessed with a great dynamic here in our church. We have young and old And it is so good to be a part of our church. Let me invite you to take your Bibles to Acts chapter, turn to Acts chapter 2, if you would. If you were with us last Sunday, you know that we launched our December sermon series on miraculous births in the Bible. And um, Don prayed for our daughter Allison this morning. Let me just say for the record that every birth is miraculous. Let's not forget that every birth is miraculous. Our daughter Allison, uh, who's living down in Jacksonville, Florida, with her husband Lucas and their little dog Jack, uh, went into labor. She was admitted to the hospital. She's moving along. Hopefully we'll have uh, our sixth grandchild by this afternoon, so you can be in prayer for uh, Allison and for the family. It's a very exciting time in the life of our family. Every birth is a miracle performed by the hands of Almighty God. And this is why, as Christians, we cherish life so much. And while every birth is miraculous, there are a number of extraordinary births mentioned in the Bible that seem to have a uniqueness to them. And so those are the births that we're concentrating on this month. And last week, as we kicked off our new series, we examined the miraculous birth and life of Samson, who was born to a mother who was physically unable to have children, but God had a different plan. His ways are always higher than our ways, and despite Samson's failings, God used him in ways that he used no one else. As you can see on the schedule in your bulletin, our intention was to cover a number of miraculous births in a certain order, but again, we are reminded in Proverbs 16 and verse 9, man can plan his ways, but it is God who directs his steps. Friday afternoon, I got a call from Pastor Flip, who was scheduled to preach this morning on the miraculous birth of Isaac. And he sadly informed me that he had tested positive for the COVID virus, and so he's going to be homebound for uh, a week or so. And so pray for him and Missy. She also has the virus. I believe their daughter Chloe has it too. Uh, As of yesterday afternoon, the only two standing were Abby and Marlene. And so as you think of their family this week, please, please pray for them. 
So I had planned to preach a message on the miraculous birth of the church on New Year's Eve, sort of as a wrap-up to our series, but uh, as you can imagine, I've been burning the candle at both ends to try and put this together on very short notice. So as my wife said during the pandemic to the lady who stopped her at the front door at Boscov's and says, ma'am, you're going to need to wear a mask in the store, we'll see how it goes, she says. And so that's where I'm at this morning. We'll see how this goes. I have never in my entire ministry ever prepared a message in less than a day's time, but uh, I've been thinking about what I wanted to share. Hopefully it'll all come together and we will be both edified, encouraged, and challenged this morning. Well, I had you to turn to the book of Acts because it's here that we learn of the miraculous birth of the church of Jesus Christ. Now let me begin this morning by reminding us that the book of Acts is a history book, right? We know that. It's a history book. Its purpose in the canon of Scripture is not necessarily to prescribe, but to describe. It is descriptive in nature and not prescriptive. In other words, because it is transitionary in nature, describing the transition between the Old Testament economy and the New Testament economy, between the age of the law and the age of grace, We need to be careful not to assume that everything that happened during that era of time is normative for today. No, a lot of things happened during the era of the early church. For for, uh, certain God-ordained purposes, albeit, but they're not normative for today. For instance, God instituted some foundational sign gifts like the speaking in unknown languages and, and miracles and healings and so on. But after those gifts served their purpose and with the completion of the canon of Scripture, they passed away along with the apostles and the prophets. So let me set the stage for you as we move into one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, Acts chapter 2. To give you a bit of a timeline as we look at this today, it's now been 50 days from the time that Jesus overcame death and was resurrected from the grave, and just 10 days since he ascended up into heaven in a glorified body. So exactly 10 days have passed from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, and to be honest with you, we know virtually nothing about what transpired in those 10 days. All we know is that After Jesus ascended up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, a group of 120 onlookers went back to Jerusalem to what is called the upper room, which is where the apostles were staying. And there we know that they prayed together, and then they took it upon themselves to appoint a 12th apostle. And that's essentially all we know about what transpired from chapter 1 of Acts to chapter 2. But it is interesting, as we come to Acts chapter 2, the setting remains the same. They're still in that same upper room in Jerusalem when one of the most important events in history takes place. The Holy Spirit of God comes in all of his splendor. This was the promise that Jesus had given his followers just prior to his ascension up into heaven. And folks, as we'll see, it was not only a magnificent historical event but a transformational, life-changing event as well. As the coming of the Holy Spirit of God launched the miraculous birth of the New Testament church. And so with that in mind, let's look at verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house while they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and to, be, and to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, my, my, my purpose for this is not to get into the apostolic gifts, the sign gifts, but I, let me just say this about verse 4 here as it relates to the speaking in other tongues. The Greek word there is glossa. There's two Greek words that talk about these, these tongues that we understand in Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit of God came down upon these people, and they spoke with uh, a tongue that they did not know. So tongues is essentially a known language, known by the hearer, but unknown by the speaker. And the Greek word here is glossa, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we move along here. But before we look at what uh, the day of Pentecost is, I think it's important to establish the magnitude of what Luke records here for us in these first four verses. A foundational understanding of who God is is absolutely essential for us as believers in Jesus Christ, for anyone. Because to believe in God, you must first understand who he is. And the Bible teaches that there is but one God. And this is explicitly stated in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This is referred to as monotheism. Mono, meaning one. Theos, meaning God. There is but one God. But that one God has revealed himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible teaches three co-eternal, co-equal persons, but one God, not three manifestations of God or three modes of God, as the modalists would heretically claim, but one God, three persons. And the best word to describe how the Bible reveals God is that he is a trinity. The word Trinity comes from the Latin word trinitas, which means three in one. And while the word trinity is not specifically used in the New Testament, it's the best word that we have available in the English language to describe God. But if we were to take it even one step further, we might say that God is a triunity. Three distinct, unified persons, but one God. So turn with me to John chapter 14. We'll go back to the Gospel of John, and we will get to this passage, and I'll preach it in more detail when we get there, when we return back to our study of the Gospel of John. But I want to read to you verses 16 and 17 here of John chapter 14. John 14, beginning with verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that's the Paracletus, that he may be with you forever. That is, and he tells us who that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. 
So it says here in verse 17 that the helper, the, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of truth. And that is to say that people are able to know and understand eternal truth because of the Holy Spirit. Now keep your finger in John chapter 14 and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. beginning with verse 12. Verse 12 says, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm sorry, uh, first, first Corinthians chapter 2, I was in First Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of... Uh, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, and yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Condition always leads to ability. For instance, if a man doesn't have any legs, that is his condition. His ability is that he cannot walk right? If a man doesn't have any eyes, that is his condition, and his ability is that he cannot see. Man's condition prior to regeneration, which is a work of the Spirit of God, is that he is spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says that man is born dead in his trespasses and sin. The word dead is the Greek word nekros. We have heard of necrology, right? This is the study of dead things. So man is spiritually dead as he comes into this world because of original sin, because of the sin of Adam, because that sin nature was passed on to all of Adam's posterity. All have sinned uh, in Adam, and so all men are born dead in their trespasses and sins. And so here in verse 14, unsaved man is referred to as a natural man. Again, his, his condition is spiritual deadness. His ability then is that he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. And so he willfully does not accept them, Paul says. But notice here that he also cannot understand the things of God on his own. And this goes to ability. Unless God, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, opens the eyes of an unsaved man to his truth, to his gospel, he will never accept it on his own because he has neither the desire nor the ability. Again, condition always leads to ability. People cannot know eternal truth apart from the Holy Spirit making it known to them. He is the, the spirit of truth. Now, hopefully you kept your finger in John chapter 14. So go back there. What might be confusing for some is that the Holy Spirit, as God, 
has always existed and has always been with believers from the beginning. Now, I want you to notice this. John says here in John 14 and verse 17 that he abides with you, right? Remember, this is before the events of Acts chapter 2. But notice John says he will future abide in you. You see it? You see the disparity and the difference? Prior to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit abided with believers, but after Acts chapter 2, he abides in believers. So at the inauguration of the church, this was one of the chief ministries of the Holy Spirit of God. When somebody came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God would be in them. He would permanently indwell them. And so all I have to say is the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of believers changed dramatically at the time of his outpouring at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 here in verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had come, when the day of Pentecost had come, And so if you know about the inauguration of the church, you know that it coincided with this day of Pentecost, the Feast of of Pentecost. I think it's important to understand that what happened at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was planned by God before the foundation of the world. The, The coming of the Holy Spirit was as much a part of the redemptive plan of God as was the incarnation and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pentecost means 50th. And it was the Greek name for the Jewish Feast of Weeks. So Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after Passover and was one of three annual feasts where the entire nation was to come to Jerusalem. And so people were to bring an offering of first fruits from their wheat harvest. Now, the symbolism here then with the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit would be the first fruits of the believer's inheritance. All believers in Jesus Christ would receive the Holy Spirit, who would not only live in them, but would empower them to live the Christian life. And the Holy Spirit would also serve as God's seal a permanent possession on their life. So let's, let's take this in. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead, alienated from God, right? Spiritual blindness. We're natural men and women. We do not understand the things of God. So God, through the Spirit, must act. He must do something in us. And so he convicts us of our sin. This is a work of the Spirit of God. He convicts us of our sin. And we see our sin in a way that we have not seen it before. We see how it offends holy God, and and we desire to turn from our sin, to turn in repentance. And that's what repentance means, to turn 
So repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. We see our sin the way that God sees our sin. The Spirit has convicted us of that. And we desire to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And he does all that at salvation. Okay? He illuminates his word in the sense that we now can understand how it applies to us. And he regenerates us. He gives us the new birth. And so we're new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. The Spirit of God then indwells us. As you sit here today, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is in you. Isn't that remarkable? When you went to bed last night and you fell asleep, the Spirit didn't leave. The Spirit lives in us to empower us to live this Christian life in a way that would please God. So he does all these things. The work of the Spirit is absolutely essential in the life of every Christian. Not only does he convict us of sin, regenerate us from our sin, but he's involved in the sanctification process as we grow in the Christian life. It's an amazing thing. We are sealed by the Spirit. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. We are sealed by the Spirit of God. God's seal of possession on our life is that we possess the Spirit of God. All this is happening in real time in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost. Notice here in verse 1 that they were all together in one place. See that? So they're in this upper room in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus had told them to wait for what was to happen. And then suddenly, verse 2, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And so if we put on our hermeneutical eyeglasses here, we realize that Luke is using a simile, a figure of speech. A simile is usually preceded by the use of like or as. And so if I were to say that he eats like a pig, he's not a real pig, but he eats like one, or he smells like a skunk, or he's as rusty as a nail, those are all descriptive words to help us to understand something. Descriptive things that are intended to help us imagine what something is like. They're similes. So notice that there was a noise like a violent rushing wind. There wasn't a huge wind that blew in, but a noise like a violent wind. And it filled the whole house while they were sitting. And then verse 3, more symbolism. There appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Again, this isn't real fire, but a description that something huge is happening. The Holy Spirit is coming upon every believer in Jesus Christ, and the evidence of that is found here in verse 4. Again, verse 4 is descriptive in nature and not prescriptive. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to preach numerous messages on the subject of tongues. And so if you're interested in learning more about what is uh, known as the sign gifts, 
you can go back and listen to some of those sermons. They're on our church website. They're on my personal ministry website, theprovisionalpastor.com. They're all there for you to, to listen to and to have your Bibles out and to examine what these sign gifts were intended to do. But this occurrence of the Holy Spirit indwelling all believers in Jesus Christ is the miraculous birth of the church. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would empower people for a particular purpose like he did Samson, right? But it wasn't until the, the, this time here at the birth of the church that he would permanently indwell and empower every believer in Jesus Christ. David, when he had sinned grievously with Bathsheba, he cries out to God. And we have his repentance in Psalm chapter 51. And he cries out to God and he asks God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Because David was the king of Israel, he was especially anointed, empowered by God through the Spirit to perform the duties that he was given by God. And we see in the Old Testament that the Spirit would come upon people and then he would depart. He would come upon people for empowerment and then he would depart. And this is what happened with Samson. The, the, the strength that Samson had was not because of his hair. It was because he was empowered by the Spirit of God, and he was amazingly strong. Amazingly strong. And again, Samson is the only person in the Bible who was given this special giftedness by God. There were only three, John the Baptist, Samuel, and Samson, who had this lifelong Nazarite vow, but Samson was the only one that had this incredible strength, which was a gift from God. And again, as I said last week, last week, that God gifts each person in the body of Christ. And so when we consider the church, we're referring to the ecclesia, the called out ones. Ek meaning out, kaleo meaning to call, the called out ones. We have been called out of the darkness into the light. We are now new creatures in Christ, and we make up the church. But this is when it started. The church was inaugurated here in Acts chapter 2. These supernatural events that happened here spur on Peter, who was one of the Lord's apostles and now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and Peter preaches the most powerful gospel sermon recorded in the Bible. Look at this as he stands up in front of this huge crowd in Jerusalem. We'll pick this up here in verse 14 of chapter 2. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk. And he's talking about those who have had the Spirit of God fall upon them, and they're, they're, they're speaking in these, these tongues and so on. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last day, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see miracles, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we go on here in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, meaning Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible, adunitas, it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I love this last part of what I just read because it shows the responsibility of man, the culpability of man for his sin, and the sovereignty of God. God is supreme. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And yet, within his sovereignty, man is responsible for his sin. These men who put Jesus on the cross will be held responsible for what they did even though in some ways they were mere pawns in the hands of God who brought about his predetermined plan so that Jesus would fulfill his purpose in going to the cross and dying in the place of sinners. Man is culpable, man is responsible, God is sovereign. Look what happened, drop down to verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and the word for should, should probably be translated because of the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation." And so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were about 3,000 souls added. In perhaps the greatest gospel sermon ever preached, via the power of the Spirit of God who indwelt Peter, now for the first time as an apostle and as a follower and believer in Jesus Christ, he preaches this powerful message 
So he's spiritually empowered by the Spirit, but the Spirit of God convicted 3,000 people with the gospel message. 3,000 people who had come to Jerusalem for the feast at Pentecost. And the church was launched. The church was born. And all this brings us then to verse 42 and following. They were continually devoting themselves. This is the the people that were saved here. This is the 3,000 people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this happening in your life? You're one of these 3,000 people who had come uh, to be a part of this feast in Jerusalem. You listen to this sermon by Peter, and the Holy Spirit of God convicts you of your sin. You repent of your sin. You trust in Christ. You're a new believer in Christ. The Spirit now indwells you and empowers you. Now what? The church had not yet been established at this point. What do we do? When I came to faith in Christ, I was a church kid. I just kept going to church. I was a part of the church before I was a Christian. I was a part of the church after I was a Christian. And so nothing really changed that way for me. But for these people, they came from all walks of life. They came from all over the the, the area, and they all converge in Jerusalem. They trust in Christ, and now what do they do? What do they do? It's remarkable that we have this account of what they did. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so from that passage right here, the inauguration of the church, the birth of the church, we can learn much about the priorities that they had here in the first church at Jerusalem. And when we couple this with the direct teachings from the epistles, we get a well-laid-out blueprint as to the composition and components of the local church. While the first church was brand new, it was in its infancy, the initial priorities were spot on. Do you see that? And so this morning, I want us to, I want us to be reminded of those priorities. It's been 2,000 years since the church was established. 2,000 years. Look what's happened to the church. Oh, there have been millions and millions of people who have come to faith in Christ since that time. But look at how messed up the church is today. I, I think we can learn much from the establishment of this church here in Jerusalem. 
But before we look at this, we need to understand the distinction between the universal church and the local church. The universal church is made up of all believers everywhere from this event here at the Feast of Pentecost all the way up until the return of Christ. So that is referred to as the church age. From the time of the inauguration of the church at the Feast of Pentecost all the way up to the return of Christ, that is the church age where God is working in a certain way, different from how he worked in the Old Testament. But in God's design, those who make up the universal church are to unite together with other believers in their local communities. And this is referred to as the local church. Now, all the commands in the epistles related to the church are lived out in a local context. The interesting thing is that we have here in Acts chapter 2 is that the universal church and the local church is the same. So let me dispel something here. God's plan for our lives is for us to use our giftedness and to unite together with like-minded believers in a local church, okay? I've heard people say over the years, well, I'm a part of the universal church, and the local church doesn't really mean anything to me. Really? Have you read the epistles? It's all written to a local church or to people in a local church. All of them apply to us living out the Christian life in a local church context. Beware of people who try to diminish the local church and elevate the universal church. And these are the people that go here and there and there and there and there and there and there and everywhere because, oh, we're just a part of the universal church. Well, you're missing it. You're missing it. You are to be actively involved in a local church. This is God's design, and this is God's plan. But here, what's interesting to me is that the universal church and the local church is the same thing. There's 3,000 people who make up the universal church at this time, and they're all in Jerusalem. So the universal church and the local church is the same. So with all of that in mind, let me uh, give you four foundational priorities of a local church born out of what we just considered here in Acts chapter 2. Again, uh, verses 41 and 42 help us to know that believers are to gather together. They're to gather together. Look at verse 41 again. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You know what was important to them? What was important to them was that God had done a work in their life. And I oftentimes think that sometimes we take that for granted. Some of us have been a Christian for decades, and God did an amazing work in our life, and now we just muddle through life. We have different priorities. We establish different priorities as Christians than what we should have. This was the most important thing to them. Using their giftedness, using uh, the, the ability to be able to encourage and to edify others within the body of Christ, The body of Christ was so vital to these people. And I think 
the modern-day church, modern-day Christians are missing it. Believers are to gather together. So after believing in Christ and identifying with Him in baptism, each believer is to prioritize the gathering together with other like-minded believers. First, it says here, to listen to the Word of God preached, to be challenged by the Word, but also for the purpose of fellowship and the breaking of bread, and this is the Lord's Supper, and for prayer. And as I said earlier, all the one another's in the New Testament are all aimed at the local church. This is why the writer of Hebrews is so clear on the absolute priority of the church gathered. Here's what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. You can turn there if you'd like, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. He says, and let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like the first church in Jerusalem, how in the world are we to encourage one another if we minimize meeting together? One of these days down the road, I plan to write a book on the church and the importance of the church. And there have been a lot of books that have been written over the years about the church, but from a pastoral perspective, as someone who has watched the church, who's been in the church his entire life, I'm seeing trends that are horrible. Horrible. I am seeing that church, the church, the local church, has been relegated to an event. This is a paradigm shift. Notice what we just read in Acts chapter 2. Did it seem like their involvement with one another's lives was an event or a lifestyle? It was the living out of who they were in Christ. Now, the church is a place we go to. Follow me? Does this make sense? This, is, this has been happening for decades to get us to this point. Now, the church is an event. Where do you go to church is the question, right? Where do you go to church? The church is an event. And oftentimes, people go to church when they don't have anything else going on. So if they have something else going on, that eh, usually takes priority because we'll go to church next week. The church is not an event. What happened at the Feast of Pentecost was an event that launched the church, but the church is the people. It's not the building. It's not a location. It's not something we go to. It's something that we are a vital part of. This is the teaching of the New Testament as it relates to the church. What's often missed from verse 25 here in chapter 10 of Hebrews is the last part, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about the Lord's return. Do we even think about the Lord's return? We're going to stand before the Lord. He's going to say, why did you make my church an event? Why did you relegate the importance of the local church, how we are going to, to, to be discipled in this life where we're going to use our giftedness, 
where we're going to interact with people, where we're going to be a part of people's lives in a substantive way. Why did you turn it into an event? We'll all stand before Christ and give an account. So he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about gathering together. And all the more as you see the draw, day drawing near. He's talking about when the, when the Lord returns. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, be with God's people more, not less. The church is not an event. It's the interconnectivity of believers in Christ in a certain location for the glory of the Lord, for us to exalt the Savior together so we can come together and exalt him. But it's also for the edification of the saints so that, that we will learn and grow in the Christian life. And that's the church gathered, but then we have the church scattered that leaves and goes out in their communities, and they, they share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. There's the church gathered and the church scattered. But the first priority is gathering together, being a part of one another's lives. And that can get messy, I get it. That can get very difficult at times, I get it. You know what it's like to live with the people in your home. You may have five kids, four kids, three kids, whatever, and things can get a little hectic and messy when there's a bunch of people together, right? But that's how we're to do life. We're to do life not just with our biological family, our physical family, but with our spiritual family within the local church. And so the gathering of believers in a local church context is absolutely essential in the economy of God. Second, believers are to care for the needs of other believers. I find this remarkable here. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone who had, might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. It seems to me as I read this that they couldn't get enough of one another. I'm sure, though, that after the initial awe of what God had done in their midst and some time had passed, people started being people and they began to pick at one another and put their own interests in front of the interest of others. And of course, that's always a troubling thing. But this is why the Apostle Paul had to remind believers in the early church that they are to constantly be looking out for the interests of others, Philippians 2.4. Because people can get selfish and conceited, but the early church had it right. Everyone was looking out for everyone else's being. Now let me just say this while we're here. The idea of selling all that they had and pooling their resources is not a mandate for the church. Again, this is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. They do this in Israel, by the way. This is what a kibbutz is. You heard of that, kibbutz? That's essentially a socialistic living together of people within a small community. And we stayed in a kibbutz when I was in Israel. Very interesting. But that is not a mandate for the church, to sell everything you have 
and give it away to somebody else. That's not what I believe Scripture is teaching here. It's just saying this is what they did. Because of what happened, this is what they did at this time. And so, again, the book of Acts is a history book. It's descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. The emphasis here is on the heart of believers. They loved one another and they cared for one another's needs. Then third, believers are to praise God. The third priority is believers are to praise God. Verse 47 praising God and having favor with all of the people. At the heart of the Christian experience is the praise of God, not just with our lips, but with our lives. We worship God in spirit and in truth, and we live out what He wants us to live, and that is a form of worship that we hand back to the Lord. We are to praise God. We're to elevate God. We're to lift Him high. Not just when we're together, but with our lives. And then fourth, believers are to evangelize the lost and add to their number. Do you catch that here in verse 47? Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this goes back to the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, right? So we are to tell people about Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ, to witness to others, to tell others, to evangelize. But God does all the work. He is sovereign in salvation. Notice here that the church grew, and it grew exponentially. But how did it grow? It grew in the same way that it grows today, through the proclamation of the gospel. As we close today, I want to read you a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 10. So if you'd like to turn there, Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 8. Romans 10 and verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. And this is one of the great things about the diversity of the church, right? We're all in Christ, no matter what our ethnicity, whether we're, we're, we're Jew or Greek or whatever we are, we're all in Christ. The Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on His name. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all hear the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. People are going to come to faith in Christ as they hear the Holy Spirit-inspired and empowered 
gospel message. The power of God into salvation is, according to Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel message. So our job is not to get someone saved. Our job is to give the gospel and allow the Lord to appropriate it to the hearts of people. And he does that in so many ways. He uses the Bible, the gospel, to convict people of their sin. But how will they be convicted without the gospel message? How will they hear the gospel message unless someone tells them? And this is the whole point. This is a huge part of the church scattered for us to be God's hands and feet and mouthpieces in the world. So we come together for edification. We come together for praising God. We, we come to, together to care for the needs of one another within the body of Christ. And then we go out in our communities and we live out who we are in Jesus Christ. And it's only through the powerful Holy Spirit convicting message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that anyone receives eternal life. The miraculous birth of the church. And here we are, 2,000 years later, a part of the same church. We're a part of the same church, the regenerate people of God, the called out ones. And so as we consider about the birth of the church, that's important for us to know. But what's really important is how we're going to live out who we are in Christ through the church, as we are the church. Right? We don't just go to church. We are the church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that we can look into it, dive into it, absorb it, and then live it out. This is our heart and prayer. Lord, as we contemplate um, what you have done, which is you have placed us within the church, you've given us your spirit. Now, may we learn from the zeal and the happenings of the early church. What made them tick? What was it that they did? And may we continue on in the tradition that was started by these people. And may we live out the one another's in the Christian life. We thank you and we praise you this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.